As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The producers of this podcast... Recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. And then in 2000, late 2016, I get a phone call from Damien Loon, senior sergeant, um, asking me, where I was at the time, I said I was driving up the highway. Why? He said, um, you need to pull over, I've got something to tell you. And he said, we have a person of interest in relation to your sister Cheryl's murder. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? Because that was the first time I'd ever had murder attached to Cheryl. That's Ricky Nash. In 1970, his name was Ricky Grimmer. He was seven years old and living in Wollongong in New South Wales. The family was still settling into the community. They'd only arrived a couple of months earlier as 10-pound poms. The official name of the scheme to encourage young British families to move to Australia and New Zealand after the Second World War was the Assisted Migrant Scheme. Right up until 1973, Eligible adult migrants from the British Isles could travel to Australia for just £10 sterling and their children travelled for free. Vince and Carol Grimmer were just what Australia was looking for in new citizens. They were still in their 20s. 
They had four beautiful young children, Ricky being the eldest, and Vince immediately joined the Australian Army upon arrival. For its part, Wollongong was picture postcard Australian dream, a warm, sleepy town bordered by an endless jewel sea. On what is now the site of the University of Wollongong's innovation campus, once stood the corrugated iron huts of the Fairy Meadow Migrant Hostel. This was the first Australian home for thousands of families in the late 60s and early 70s as they found their feet and adjusted to their new lives. The Grimmers were one of those families. With Vince away training, Carol Grimmer and her four small children were sweltering in one of those tin huts on the morning of January 12, 1970. Luckily, relief was close by in the form of Fairy Meadow Beach. So like countless other mums, she packed up a picnic lunch and walked the kids down to the sand. At around 2 p.m., Carol decided it was time to head home. She sent the kids to the dressing sheds to shower off, putting her eldest son, Ricky, in charge of the baby and only girl, three-year-old Cheryl. The boys took Cheryl into the male change room with them and they all showered off together. As the boys were gathering up their towels and clothes, Cheryl playfully ran out of the male change room, goading her brothers to chase her. As Ricky did so, Cheryl cleverly ran into the one place she knew he'd never follow her, the female dressing shed. Seven-year-old Ricky stood in the doorway begging and pleading with Cheryl to come out of there, which only made the game more enjoyable for her as anyone with a three-year-old will no doubt relate to. Meanwhile, Ricky was starting to become anxious about getting in trouble for taking so long, so he made the fateful decision to run down to the sand and get his mum. That was the last confirmed sighting of three-year-old Cheryl Grimmer. In the following days, Vince Grimmer's army comrades joined him and thousands of locals in the search for his daughter. He was interviewed at one point, and it's hard to do justice to the man on the film. He's so young, and he's so incredibly gracious and dignified in this hideous moment. Mr Grimmer, the police are still leaning fairly heavily on their theory that, uh, that your daughter Cheryl has been abducted. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I think I've I, I got to go along with the police on uh, the grounds that we got so far. Um, as you know, we've searched Arrow pretty thoroughly and there's just no trace of it at the moment, so I think we, we just have to go along with that theory for the time being. Well, if in fact she has been taken away by someone, have you any words for that particular person? Oh, I've got, got some words, all right, I'll tell you that now. But um, if anybody has got my daughter, I would honestly and truly, I would like her back unharmed as early and as quick as possible. That's about all I can say. You're still hopeful that she I'm will. I'm very, very hopeful. I never give a hope. Never. Vince Grimmer was no doubt changed forever by this terrible thing that was done to his family. For one thing, as you'll hear, his relationship with seven-year-old Ricky never recovered. Now in his late 50s, Ricky is completely focused on finding justice for his baby sister Cheryl. He now believes he knows exactly what happened to her on that day. He believes he knows who abducted her from Fairy Meadow Beach. And on Wednesday, we'll upload two more episodes of Australian True Crime, featuring interviews with the two detectives who charged the man they also believe is responsible. He's very much alive, He's living in the community, and they believe that thanks to a legal technicality, he's gotten away with murder twice. Because of that legal technicality, that man is known as Mercury. But all is not lost. Hopefully, thanks in no small part to the excellent BBC podcast Fairy Meadow, hosted by John Kay, the New South Wales Attorney General, Mark Speakman, will reconsider his decision not to intervene on behalf of the Grimmer family. He has the power to give them their day in court. He has the power to give Cheryl Grimmer a voice to be heard by a jury. So far, he's chosen not to do that, but it's entirely up to his discretion and he can change his mind at any time. There's a link in our show notes and on our Facebook page if you'd like to get in touch with New South Wales Attorney-General Mark Speakman to share your thoughts on the matter but I'd urge you to listen to these episodes and most importantly to the BBC podcast Fairy Meadow before you do that. There are also links to the show in our show notes and on our Facebook page. 
Okay, to the extraordinary Ricky Nash now, formerly known as Ricky Grimmer. He'll explain the name change as we go along. It's part of a pretty massive evolution that's taken place over the last decade or so in his life. Because believe it or not, it's only been that long that Ricky's been in counselling. It's incredible, isn't it, considering the trauma he's been living with for over 50 years. I'll issue another trigger warning for this episode because we dig into some pretty deep mental illness issues. Actually, some friends of my ex-wife um, sort of saved my life. Otherwise, we, weren't, we wouldn't be here talking. It's hard to love somebody who's just so deeply traumatised. I didn't let anybody love me. In the minute I felt comfortable and happy, I'd find a way, and not knowingly, yeah. to destroy it, absolutely destroy it. I mean, um, no woman that lived with me deserved to go through what I put them through, um, especially you know my third wife, who was the love of my life, and I couldn't see it in front of me, and if I did, I didn't accept it. You know, so I moved past it, and I destroyed it. Um, to the point where she just said, one day I'm leaving you. Fair enough. That's okay. You had obviously been raised after Cheryl was lost to believe that you didn't deserve anything good. No, I never, I never spoke about it. I never spoke about Cheryl or anything like that. It wasn't until, as I say, these people found me in a car park, um, friends of hers, um, they found me made me get help. So I went and saw first psychologist ever, probably no. 50 years too late. Serious? Yeah. And she now, well, she was living in Rome, but I still see a psychologist, a local one here now. And But my first psychologist, Elizabeth, said, we have to do a data dump out of your head, Ricky. Your head is just full. Yeah. There's no room. There's no room. So we started talking about it and my, my life, I guess, was being laid out into a book. Um, so from basically when I was seven and a half, eight, right through to at that time I was probably 53. So we had to do that over months of excruciating. The first couple of meetings I said very little, but then it started. she started getting it out of me. And I'll never forget one of the things she said, look, to your credit, um, she said, most people wouldn't be here now. They wouldn't be alive. Absolutely. Um, and, and Cheryl's only one of them um, finding out that I was didn't have a father, and uh, you know, a real father. When I was 13, through a fight, other things that have happened in my life that I just don't want to add. Um, it's been an interesting journey to this stage. And um, had, had those I'd... three wives nagged you to go to counselling? No, because I didn't tell them what, what was in my head. No, but clearly there was something going on with you and they all, they left you. Yeah. Didn't they, in the lead up to leaving you, harangue you to go to counselling with them? And I'm probably sure my third wife did. I mean, the first ones were very brief, very young. I mean, um, my first wife, um, we were both we're kids um, and I, I married my first wife due to my daughter being born. Yeah, because you became a dad at 19. Yeah, and I didn't want to be like my biological father and just walk away from my mother. So we, we gave it a shot, but we were kids. Yeah. You know, we were young. Um, living in Wollongong, it was pretty depressed at the time in Cringilla and stuff like that. Um, it was tough times, um, but it was never going to work. And my second marriage was probably a little bit of a rebound. She was a lovely lady. Um, once again, didn't deserve, you know, what I brought to the table. And, you know, and then I, I did meet the love of my life um, and um, turned that to shit after 21 years. So 21 years you were together? 21 years together. 14 years together, three kids, three lovely kids. Uh, I believe two of them are police officers now. What um, do you mean you believe? They haven't spoke to me for eight years since we um, split up. Still? Hmm, not one word. Do you think, I wonder if they hear the podcast, maybe that might reconnect some things. Um, look, I'm proud of them that the, the three of them stayed together. I've got two sons, uh, well, I've got two sons, two daughters, but three kids to my third wife. And they've all stayed together and supported their mother and stuff like that. So I'm proud of them for doing that. Um, 
Do you speak to her? No. Since the day she said a couple of words that morning and that was it, never spoke to her ever again. And I was blindsided. I didn't know because I couldn't see it coming. You were, dr- you were drinking a lot, weren't you, oh, at that stage? And yeah. I mean, obviously, Way too much. everything yeah. else. And, well, yeah. yeah. I was 50 kilos heavier than what I am today and stuff like that, you know. So I was a bit of a mess. Yeah, but that's how you're still alive. I mean, you had yeah. to, that's what we do, isn't it? We find ways to survive. You know, they might not be healthy, they might not be smart or whatever, but we find mechanisms to cope and that was it. Yeah, but you don't see yourself doing it. No. You don't see yourself doing it, sadly, until you, if you're lucky, you get on the outside and then you start looking inside and you, you see those mistakes. But I'm one of the lucky ones that got to the outside and I have a cause now, I guess you'd call it. Um, I just suppressed it for 45 years. I think, um, um, you know, listening to the podcast, you know, there's the absolute tragedy of what happened to Cheryl, but, you know, listening about, you know, from a very young age, you, you had such an adult reaction to, you know, what happened because you're a child, you know, look, watching out for your sister, but, you know, all along it was like you were, you know, well, blamed, can I say, Bla- oh, blamed yourself. Sure. And it was just like this and, and I just kept thinking, you know, Ricky, of course you're so traumatised and, you know, even listening to the last episode where you said, you know, I wish I'd I'd grabbed her, I wish I'd gone in. I've never in seen and- anyone talk about their trauma and talk about a crime and we talk to a lot of victims of crime. I have never seen anyone be as candid and as open as you ever and, and as often, like I've just never seen anyone put themselves out there like you do, Ricky. It's a lot of, lot of, lot of visits to people that have, are trying to help me and stuff like that. Um, and hopefully my pain will bring someone to come forward. Mm. I mean. I don't think I've ever seen anyone blame themselves like yeah. you do either. And who is just, as you know, intellectually, because people keep telling you, who is not at fault. That's not true. It was my fault. But um, it can't be because no, no, you're a little boy yeah, and you're a kid. You weren't the offender. Like there's only one person at fault and it wasn't you. I was given the responsibility, albeit I was seven and a half years. I was, if you saw photos of my sister mm. and I, I mean, I was a reasonably sized kid at seven and a half. I see her standing there every day, you know. But because um, you were so beautifully raised and had mm. such beautiful manners, you didn't want to go into the ladies' toilets and get her. It's you that... just didn't do that. No, of course no, not. I just didn't do that. Of course not. Um, because you were just beautifully respectful little boy. My son wouldn't do that. I never imagined something like that could ever happen. I and mean, your it's mum not... was a stone's throw away. Well, no one did back in those times, did they? I mean, you, you. As I say, my son still wouldn't. There's no way in the world. He would do exactly what you did now. I wish I was your son. There is only one person at fault and it was not you. Like I get frustrated now, you know, and it's awful because we brought our kids up and my brother's the same way with his kids, my, my youngest brother, that you just don't take your eyes off them, you panic the minute that you're blindsided, you know. Um, that day is like that water sitting in front of me. It's there all day, every day. Mm. Um, I just stay busy, stay active, um, keep doing something, stay on the move, don't sit down, just keep going. Um, your parents, um, your mum is Carol, was Carol, Carol's past. Yep. And your dad was Vince. Mm. Vince, look, it's hard to say, but sort of understandably in a way, um, you know, men, a lot of men certainly of older generations, just he just did not know how or where to put his anguish and unfortunately he put it on you. Yeah, he... Um 
in the, in the bad moments of his life, which was far too frequent. Um, you know, I, I, any one of us here, if we lost a child and not knowing, one thing is you know, you're losing a child to a, an accident or whatever the case may be, but just the never knowing would just rip you apart. So, you know, you're watching your parents just slowly destroy themselves, you know, um, and he was angry and he was bitter and it wasn't until I turned 13, so sort of five years have passed um, and he's blaming me quite frequently when he'd had a few too many drinks and stuff like that. And um, it's funny, my, my um, youngest son... Um, Sometimes, you know, when he didn't want to be found and stuff like that, he'd go and curl up under the bed and he'd curl up so far up into the corner, you'd look under the bed and he wasn't there, but he was. He was mm. so far curled up. Well, that was me when I was younger because I was so scared of being beaten. Um, and he'd sort of, you know, say to my mother and stuff like that when he'd had a few drinks, why did he leave her and stuff like that. No, I know he didn't. He was venting. He was frustrated, like I'm frustrated today. Um, but when I was 13, they were having an argument at a unit that we lived in in Penrith. They were having standard standard fight. And I actually sided, sided with, um, with Vince. And um, I said, Mum, you need to back away. I said, Dad's right. And he goes, there you go, and he's not even my son. Mm. And I took a backward step and I said, I just hear that. Is there something you, you guys need to tell me? And then this knife comes flying past my face, how it missed me, let alone him. And I asked them, you know, is there something you need to tell me? And they said, yeah, you need to sit down. I said, I'm not sitting down run away for a couple of days, cold and hungry, come back with a tail between the legs and they told me um, that um, Vince wasn't my father. Um, he came onto the scene when I was very young um, and, yeah, that's the way I found out. So I sort of maybe started to understand. I started putting one and one together and it did equal two. Maybe that's why his frustration sort of erred on my side. Um, we had a really turbulent relationship thereafter. Um, but he got cancer, um, about three years. He was diagnosed before he passed away. And one day I was, I was grown up, I was a bit, grew up a little bit and I knocked on the door and said, look, let's bury the hatchet. And he did raise me, um, although it might've been a, you know, up, up and down, um, raising, and he still raised me. I mean, we never wanted for food or a roof over our head. He worked extremely hard. Um, he was a very hard worker. Um, you know, um, both him and, and my mother, they worked really hard to keep us going. And I mean, it must have been incredibly tough for them. I mean, uh, it's their child. But going back to my father, um, yeah, we just couldn't couldn't see eye to eye thereafter. But we did bury the hatchet and um, when he passed away, I think we were on probably the best terms we'd probably ever been on. So that was that was good. God, you're an incredibly forgiving man. How old did he was he when he died? Fifty seven, he was very young. Yeah. Yeah. How has your health been? Oh, look, I'm probably probably the fittest I've ever been now. I, that's awesome. I, I walk, a, walk a little bit. I try and do about 150 Ks a week and stuff like that and try and keep myself active and so on. Um, but, you know, through my, my 20s and 30s and, and, and my 40s. <laughs> um, I, I have to of... say I'm, I'm stunned. It's so rude of me, but I'm stunned that your third wife and your kids haven't contacted you since you've been so vocal um, in the last couple of years about about Cheryl? I guess that just goes to show you how destructive I may have been. Um, yep. I she guess. didn't deserve, you know, what I brought to the table for her. I mean, we've got three beautiful kids and um, we both should be very grateful for that because they are beautiful kids. 
I hope they're still beautiful. <laughs> but I haven't seen them in eight years. But um, I do go and watch my youngest son and it's probably detrimental to my well-being, um, my partner thinks anyway, that, um, and I do too, that I go and watch him play footy. And um, Do you? Does he know you're there? Yeah, I stand right behind him. How fascinating. But I don't want to get intrude on his mm. area. I, he can see me there. All he's got to do is make the, the right step. I think it's an insight into the power of trauma, actually, to, to consider how difficult your daily existence must have been then uh, for you and the family. It wasn't difficult. I mean, I just suppressed everything. It was just alcohol. and To think about you now, though, it's hard. Like, I just can't even believe that they're not in touch with you. And then, and then I think, gosh, you must have been a very different guy then. Mm, I guess their actions mm. proved that it probably was. And um, well, I thought I was a pretty good father, to be honest. Um, you know, I showed them the world. We, they went to good schools. Um, obviously, they, they've all done well. I mean, as I say, I believe that two of them are in the police force now. Um, I'm not sure what my youngest daughter's doing. Um, so I think they've, uh, you know, they've got a good upbringing um, and their mother probably shielded them from a lot of things that were happening behind closed doors and stuff like that. But You know how you talk about the memories of the day and how clear they are and they're with you all the time? Were they the same? Were they the same then? Were they were were you being sort of visited by that day as constantly when you weren't talking about it back then as you are now? No, I see. No, I see. So you actually had buried it. I wanted to forget it. Yeah. 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 Um. Right, but now that you talk about it so often, it's it's really back and present. Well. Damien Frank, my psychologist and stuff. Um, I've got a beautiful psychologist now, Nicole, that um, we have regular Zoom hookups and stuff yeah. every couple of weeks and, you know, keeps you on the straight and narrow and stuff like that. Um, I've got a really good partner now that helps me and stuff like that. She's pretty hard on me, actually. So yeah. it's probably the... Sounds like you need it, mate. Yeah, I probably <laughs> did need it. You know, yeah, it's so great to hear her on the podcast, actually. She, yeah. yeah, she's pretty tough. Um, yeah, I think you need it, She keeps me on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Um, but I am a different person now to what I was eight years ago. Um, yeah. And I'm thankful for that. And it was just 40-odd years too late, you know, Um but, you know, potentially 40 years early too. Like you may, you mm. may never have, you know, some, some people never mm -hmm. go to counselling, never face whatever it is, never, you yeah, know. But I, I probably would have never have, uh, have gone either if, um, if my wife didn't leave me. Yeah. I mean, she's done us both a favour, yeah. done herself a favour by getting outside of that front door. And the podcast may never have happened, you know, like these are the things That's that so roll true. out, you know. Yeah. And you may never have progressed Cheryl's case. Mm. No. That's so fascinating, isn't it? Because obviously at the time you would never have been able to see any positive that day your wife said, I'm out. No, none. But, um, yeah, we, um, we move forward and as my daughter said, yeah. Dust yourself off, go to bed, get up the next day and it's a new day and you go again. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I've actually written to my biological father, who chooses not to acknowledge that either. He does. Yeah, and he, I sent him some photos of myself, and I, I sort of asked him, uh, um, without being intrusive, I said, "Look, my, my mother, because my daughter found out who my father was before me, my biological father, because it got brought out in a, in the first inquest. So apparently they they spoke to him, and he denied that he was the father, but." Uh, my mother then, I asked my mother and she said, yes, he's, he's your father. And I said, okay, why would a woman say that, that this person's your father if he's not your father? So my cousin tracked him down in the UK. We sent him a non-intrusive letter. And I didn't say, I didn't accuse him of being my father. I said, look, my mother's mentioned this name, your name. Is this person? You were in Bristol at the time, same age, everything's the same, blah, blah, blah. Is there a possibility that, that you could be my biological father, um, blah, 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 if, if any type of answer would be, you know, um, appreciated? Um, if you're not, I'm sorry for intruding into your life and, and so on. But um, we all believe he is and the irony of it all, if it's true, if he is... Um, My biological father, I have a half-sister. Okay, if I can figure. Mm. Sorry. No, it's all right. It's fine. Yeah, so... Do you know anything about her at all? No, we my my cousin found out a little bit about her. Um, sent her a couple of messages, and it's funny that my one of my cousins, Mark Rimmer in the UK, uh, he's one of his best mates that he's grown up with all of his life, happens to be related, or and. Mark wanted to know how I knew this guy on Facebook and I told him, I said, look, this is what I think because they didn't realise that none of the family knew that Vince wasn't my father. Mm. And um, they connected all the dots and even his best friend goes, we always thought that he had a son out there. Mm. But he's a coward too. He just doesn't, you know... I don't know what it is with people. I mean, I said simply just do a DNA test and we can just get it over and done with and prove it. Let's just move forward. Mm. Um, I don't want anything from him um, other than, you know, just uh, I'd like to meet him, I guess, curiosity. I'm a, I'm a near 60-year-old man now. I, I, our time's gone. 
it's done, but it'd be nice to know one another and acknowledge one another and mm. just maybe, you know, you can build something with any other siblings I might have out there. Um, um, my mum's side of the story was he just didn't want a child in his life. It was either him or me and she chose me. Stupid. No, <laughs> God bless her, beautiful um, woman. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're both young as well. I mean, I, I know what it's like. I had, uh, I had a child at 19. I yeah. mean, holy shit, this yeah. is a whole new world. I can't imagine. I was no, loose as at 19. 19. I mean, particularly as your father, Vince Grimmer, the man that you thought was your father for so long, your relationship with him was so painful. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was no 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 fault of his. No. Well, no, actually bullshit. It was. I mean, he was an adult and you were a child, you were a little boy and it actually was. Sorry, Ricky, but it was. And it was his responsibility to care for you and to make it okay. And, and I know that's a really harsh thing to say and it was really hard. And Today, of course, we would have had you in counselling and mm. him in counselling and everyone in family counselling. We know that now and they didn't know that then but... Yeah, he had no help. There was no one yeah. to help him. He, had, he just had an empty space. God, he, the poor there man. There was nothing. I know, it's horrible but, um, God, poor little Ricky, it's just heartbreaking. Were there any adults in your world who said... Oh God! I got to go in there and help Ricky. Like, was there any teachers, scoutmasters, um, neighbours? Yeah. No. Because I didn't show it. I didn't. Didn't probably look like I needed help. Ah, uh, you were crawling under the bed and hiding no, in the corner. That was at home behind closed doors. Yeah. It's only my mother and that. I mean, my mother got in the way of him a couple of times to protect me and stuff like that. When I thought I was 18 and tough enough, I had a crack and I wasn't, I wasn't tough enough. Yeah. But I had a crack. That's quite common too. Yeah, uh, I've heard that a few times with people and yeah. Yeah. Mm. boys. Yeah. yeah. But this is not about me. I mean, this is a three-year-old girl that had no protection and I should have given her that protection. You were a little boy. No, I should have dragged her. Should have dragged her out. We're a f- you know, meet, metres away. We're as close as you and I are sitting here. But if you think about it the other way, had that predator not been there that day and you walked into the female toilets to get her, you may have been you may have spent the afternoon having a conversation with your mum about why you went into the ladies' toilets. You could have been chased out by some adult lady yelling at the top of her lungs about what a naughty boy and whose boy is this and could have, I don't know if your mum was a smacker, but, you know, like it so easily and normally could have been that scenario. Give me that conversation. Give me that Of course, beating. of course. You know, that's on a normal day at the beach had you gone and thought to yourself, oh, for Christ's sake, Cheryl, and gone in there and grabbed the cheeky monkey out of there and that's, that's what the two – Options should have been, the two alternatives should have been. I'll take the other one. Of course, yeah. I believe I spoke to him on that day. Like they finally took a a statement from me, Damien and Frank, in uh, 2017. And one of the things I vividly remember is speaking to a bigger kid on that day. Now, I didn't know about the confession at this time. We knew nothing of the confession, my family, my parents, none of us until the first hearing, which was in May of 2017. And unbelievably, this was the first time you had been interviewed since Cheryl disappeared in the 70s. Yet they interviewed my five-year-old brother, Stephen. That is... That's weird. That you were the last to see Cheryl. So finally, a couple of years ago, you were interviewed. And Mm. what happened? Well, during that interview, I said I'd... um, when I was coming up from the beach, um, when we were all coming up, um, there was a, a kid that approached us and, and um, I can't remember what he said, but um, Damien, one of Damien's questions were during the interview was, okay, um, remember anything about this this kid? Why do you call him a big kid? And I said, well, he was bigger than me. He was much bigger than me. 
He goes, okay. He goes, anything that you remember about him? I said, he had a, you're going to think this is funny, but he had a big nose. Okay. Um, and then they took me through the rest of my statement. I gave it all off. He goes, you seem pretty sure of your, you, you know. Yeah. I said, it's, it's there. It doesn't go away. It's in my nightmares. It's, it's just there every time. It doesn't change. It is what it is. So when he confessed in April of 71, his confession was so detailed that I've spoken to one of the officers that was um, taking the statement, long retired now, Finlay. I said, do you believe he done it? He goes, 100%. He goes, he didn't hesitate. It was fluent. Didn't have to think about it. It was just, he just wanted to get it off his chest. Um, he was in the podcast, wasn't he? He yeah. was the one interviewed saying, yeah, it, it just flowed out. We need to start at Sydney Central Railway Station because this is where the young Mercury is picked up by the police in April 1971. He's 17 years old. He's been in and out of hostels and detention centres and the cops find him at the station, they suspect him of theft, and they take him to the Metropolitan Boys Shelter nearby. Now, it's a pretty gloomy place. It's a remand home for juveniles who are waiting to appear at Sydney Children's Court, which is right next door. Mercury is held there, and after 10 days, he tells the manager that he wants to talk to the police about another matter. He says he has information about the disappearance of Cheryl Grimmer, which had happened 15 months earlier down the coast in Wollongong. When did you join the police? How old were you? 1961, I was 16. OK. The first couple of years were always in uniform. This is retired Detective Constable Phil Findlay. Uh, he was the junior officer on duty that Thursday afternoon in the Criminal Investigation Branch. His boss was Parrington, Joe Parrington, a seasoned Sydney detective famous for his Panama hat. We were in the office and there was a call made from, and I think it's on the record, from the supervisor or something at the detention centre that there was a guy that he had in custody there who may be able to help us with a matter. It was enough for Parrington and I to respond straight away to that call and go down to... We walked, because it was two blocks away, walked to the detention centre, spoke to the guy and then spoke to the fella himself. So you're there, there's a, a teenage boy yep. uh, to speak to. Yep. Um, tell me what happened. The normal thing is there's introductions when you go into the room. You sit down and explain to them what you propose to do. He was quite willing to engage in a, in a record of interview where uh, Parrington asked the questions. I typed them down. He gave his answers and I typed them down. How did he seem? Describe him to me. What did he look like? How did he behave? Well, his demeanour to me was quite normal. He didn't, he didn't seem to be affected by what he said. Everything he said was, came out voluntarily. Did he seem distressed or emotional? Not, not, not at all, not at all. Not distressed, not emotional. Just sat there quietly and, and uh, narrated what I recorded. Did he seem vulnerable to you? Did you have concerns? Well, his demeanour was just normal. I mean, he wasn't nervous, he wasn't shaking, he wasn't sweating, he wasn't lost for words. It all flowed from the questions. His answers just flowed and, as I said, there was no need to interrupt him or stop or... I don't even recall asking him to slow down. I just kept typing. From BBC Radio 4, Fairy Meadow. Subscribe now on BBC Sounds. Now, he wrote this confession, or he gave the confession, freely, in a detention home. If his minders felt that he was unstable at the time, surely they would have sat in with police. He's in, the, he's in his own dwelling. He's in the detention home. So if, why wouldn't they have sat in with him when they called police up? They said, look, he's, we believe he's got some information. So he's in his own environment, not a police station. He's in his own environment under the care and guidance of his carers. Look, 
those homes in those days were notoriously terrible environments. I mean, those boys and girls were oftentimes subject to a lot of abuse and mistreatment in those homes. It doesn't surprise me for a single second that he was not supervised in that environment, uh, advised or anything like that. doesn't surprise me one bit. However, the fact that now, retrospectively, his statement, the statement that he gave then, you know, and his confession isn't allowed to be used in court because now they say, oh, well, it's not really fair, is it, to use that confession because he was a minor and he didn't have legal representation and we don't really like the way the confession was taken. It's heartbreaking. It's outrageous. You know, and and as the police say who were there and who took the confession, they're like, hey, we did everything to the letter of the law as it stood then. Absolutely they did. They followed the law. Absolutely. They they did nothing inappropriate for the day. No. So the last time you saw her was just in the doorway. That's correct. Yeah, just just tucked inside. Um yeah, come on, I'll, I'll show you. On the 12th of January, 1970, three-year-old Cheryl Grimmer disappeared from Fairy Meadow Beach in Australia. She was such a happy, smiley child, you know. The boys idolised her because she was the little princess. So she was just, just there. She's smiling and giggling and just playing. It was like a, like a joke. I'm John Kay, and from BBC Radio 4, a new podcast, Fairy Meadow. Subscribe now on BBC Sounds. It was so upsetting to hear in that final episode of the podcast, which Mm. you have not heard, there were highs and lows. And the lowest point has to be, so there was a high point where at the 50th anniversary of Cheryl's disappearance, you were part of the announcement that was a million-dollar reward was being offered for information leading to an arrest and leading to a conviction. Um, But then um, it was... A catch up a year later, I think, with you and your daughter, beautiful woman, and um, you both said, oh, we feel like nothing's really happening. Yeah, you only hear from the detectives if you call them. Yeah, because there was just so much energy at that announcement of the reward and it felt like you so much cohesion between you and investigators. And then just this awful despondency in your voices and you daughter's crying her eyes out and and you're just saying, God, I, I feel like nothing's happening. Well, since the announcement um, on January the, the 12th, 2020, we've not heard from police. No. Nothing. Unless I ring them, they won't ring me. Do you reckon they'll get in contact after they might listen to the podcast? Oh, my Christ, they'd I, better. I, mean, I did receive an email, the first email, with some questions from... From the detective that's now, I believe, part-time working on Cheryl's case. Is this a different detective? Like, do you yeah, know? It's a different one, yes, yeah, starting from the very beginning again. And oh, it is no. common, isn't it? So often homicide detectives will have some, cold, like, unsolved cold cases on the side that they just have to juggle. Yeah. Yeah, but you'd think, like, that's so frustrating to get a new detective again, a new detective again. It's like when, yeah, We've yeah, talked about that. Uh, in a way, it can be the saving grace, because you talk to those families who go, and then suddenly we got this new detective called Gary Jubilant. You know, like suddenly they get that superstar who is just changes everything. So it can be the thing, but for a family to go, oh, God, another new one, can you share with us the questions or is that too rude? Well, they're just questions about my, my stepfather, how often um, he came home from work because he was in the mm. army and he, he was away, he was stationed away at Penrith when we lived in the hostel, how often he came home, how often we went to the beach. They're just like insanely what, rudimentary. What questions are those? Yeah. But one of the seniors at Homicide in New South Wales has looked Frank and I in the face and told us, we know he's done it. The man who was charged. The man that was charged. Who confessed. So 
Why aren't you looking at him? Mm. And his silence tells us he done it. As you said, if you'd been incarcerated for two years, mm. his wife, current wife, told a reporter she used to go there every week. She went there once. Mm. Once she visited him in Sydney. Not every week, not every fortnight, once. They keep a record. I was just thinking, well, that's absolutely yeah, traceable. Record. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know? Um, what are we dealing with here? Mm. Is is there something bigger going on that we don't know about? Well, here's my question to question. you. Uh, oftentimes, police, in cases long running as this, there will be officers who have worked on it earlier who are now senior and I'm not making any suggestions about what that can mean, but is would you say that's the case here? Are there some people who are now quite senior in New South Wales Police who have worked on this case sort of in the early days, to, to the best of your knowledge? No, no. Um, it's a detective that's now working on the case. Uh, I'm not sure how long she's been in the force. It's a female detective um, working on the case. Um She's openly told me it's part-time. She's got other cases mm. going and stuff like that. So, mm. you know, you, you look at, you know, even Frank and Damien, um, when they went back to the UK and they were they actually met some of the officers that were involved in the Madeleine McCann case. Mm. Mm. There's 96 officers working on that. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. 96. Yeah, it was massive. Millions and millions and millions of pounds. But don't forget those parents, you know, for years had to raise their own funds and yeah. same, really, they had to shame the authorities into, yeah. you know. We shouldn't have to do that. No. I mean. No. Well, it shouldn't be about money. It, it, all we want and all we've ever wanted is the truth. Yeah. You know. We we know that we can probably never bury Cheryl, um, no. never have a grave site for her. Um, but we would just like to hear the truth. It, people say, oh, that'll give you resolution. Really? I, I, I don't believe so. I mean, we had our chance back in 1971 if police mm. had just done the right thing. We had a chance. Um, yeah, it's a lot of... My parents went to their grave with that chance taken away from Like if in 1971 it went to court, as Finlay said, they should have charged him. He said, I would have charged him. There was enough. Mm -hmm. He'd have probably, he'd probably be walking the streets today because he'd probably served his time and done. But that would have given my parents the answers that they so desperately needed. Mm. Yep. Okay, so they might have been able to rebuild their life. Would they have possibly had another child? Because they're still quite young. Yeah, very mm. young. They're young. They're in their 20s. Oh, God. But the never knowing next week she's going to come in the front door, they'll find her next week, next month. Also, would it, have, would it have helped little Ricky yeah. Grimmer to have known and <clears throat> to have accepted who the offender was, who who the whose fault it was. I would have liked to have been given that chance. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't have had an abusive father blaming me. That's right. Yeah. That's we right. would have liked to have been given that chance. That you as a family yeah. would have, would have known where to, story. where to put that yeah. guilt, you know. But, you know, even if it did make court back in 1971 and he walked out a free man, so be it. Well, Even right. today, yeah. if it got to court and a jury finds him innocent, so be it. So you would never have eyeballed him in court, would you? Did he ever go? I wasn't allowed in because I'm a witness. Yeah. You're, you're not allowed near him though no. either now, are you? No. To go near him. It would be very detrimental to his health. Yeah. You, well, and yours, I would think. Mm, I'd be having a holiday paid one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've yeah. got a, like a legit ABO against... Uh, I think it's him? just finished now. So. Okay. Against you, know, you? A piece of paper wouldn't yeah, stop me. Yeah, so anyway. he couldn't, an ABO, so he isn't allowed to go near Mercury. Oh. But, 
What was, why did they put that out against you, on you? I think it was done probably to protect me. Yeah. Did he take it out or the police? No, uh, police. Mm. Um, I remember speaking to the Attorney General. I was in New Zealand um, with my partner. We were on holiday and we it was a time that the Attorney General was going to hand down his decision on, on whether he would um, step in and help us. Mm. Um, but she didn't. Didn't have the courage or the conviction to give us a give us our our crack at it, and I still believe he can do that today. He still has the power to mm-hmm. to have this confession heard in a court. Um, give Cheryl the the chance to be heard. You know that's all we want at the end of the day. And as I say, it just doesn't rely on the confession. The confession is the centre. There are lots of things on the outside that need to be heard by. Mm-hmm. Our family, mm-hmm. by the public. How old? Just, just remind us. Actually, how old was Cheryl? Three. A three-year-old little girl. Hmm. Yeah. Didn't stand a chance. No. no. And a just a three-year-old funny, silly little girl. Yeah, teasing her brother. She gave it to me, all right? <laughs> yeah, of course, because she had three big brothers doting on her. And you're yep. only seven, seven so young. Yeah. Kept thinking about that in the podcast, you know, just the responsibility you took, you've taken on all your life. It's like seven is young. I, I think a seven-year-old then is different to a seven-year-old of today. Yeah, more, more mature, yeah. I think it, it was different back then. You grew up faster. Mm-hmm. I mean, we weren't far past the past the times that as a 12-year-old people were getting married at 12 years of age, you know. Well, even in the 70s, I mean, the 80s, I was 12 and I was babysitting other people's kids. I always yeah. tell my 12-year-olds that. You but grew I tell up you, fast. What hasn't changed, I've got a three-year-old niece and she is a rat bag. Yeah. Very cute. And, yeah, I think about her a lot when I think about Cheryl, you know, about that. And she's doted on as well. So that confidence, mm. silliness, you know, all of that. Mm. I so get your little Ricky's frustration, you know, at the fact that she won't come out. And as I said earlier, this beautifully raised, polite, respectful little boy just thinking yeah. to himself, well, I can't, please, come on, I can't go in there and yeah. get you. And just thinking, ah. You'd never dream gotta, of doing it. As you said, no. like your son, but like back in, you wouldn't even dream of going into a separate. And thinking now I've got to go and annoy block. mum. Yeah. You know, thinking you that, and you don't want to do that either. Mum's. Because this is the job you've been given. Oh, now I've got to go and annoy mum, run down and grab mum to come and get her, you know? Such a good boy. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, I was cranky at my mum that she was taking so long to pack up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's it. It's so torn. Like, come, 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 please, please. She's up there by herself. And yeah. It's just, yeah, it just, you just, it's something you would never imagine would happen. It just, but no, no. But, I, you know, I, I, I put some notes down, but, you know, I'd, I'd like to, anybody that's in authority, politicians, you know, I'd really like the, the Attorney General to listen to the podcast, not just the BBC, your podcast, um, the New South Wales Premier. I mean, we need somebody in authority to to fight with us. Um, and as I say, all we want is justice. We we don't want anything else. I'm not a vigilante yeah. running around. <laughs> We're getting fed by information that's given to us. When you have the head of homicide tell you that they know he's done it. And he's told a detective this as well, and the detective will tell you under oath that this is what he was. This is what he said to us. Wouldn't you be totally frustrated mm-hmm. and just angry? Well, I am angry, Ricky, because as a member of the public, that's telling me that uh, an offender, a sexual offender, is 
out on the street. So we should all be angry. Yeah, he's walking around. Yeah. Um, he's still that cowardly yeah. teenager um, that can't even and come and tell us his side of the story. Mm. I would challenge him, come on to your show and tell his side of the story. Come out from behind the shadows and tell us. You won't because you've done it. You've lived your life. You took Cheryl's life because she was more brave than you'll ever be in your gutless life. Um, you're a sick human being. End of story. But I would, I would ask people within authority that can help us, help us, help us let Cheryl be heard. You know, yeah. that's all I keep fighting for. I mean, she's she's the driving force behind me. Um, um, yeah, and I won't I won't give up until I take my last breath, and probably then I'll still be kicking and screaming at the top of the coffin. I believe um, that, or yeah. in the incinerator when they get rid of me. <laughs> I believe that. Um, we should all have all have a brother like you. I I, I say to Frank and Damien, I wish I never met them. Yeah, you know, and I say that because I'm selfish, because I still, and I, I still have that one percent. I wish this evil could ring me and say, "Look, it was just all fabricated. I made it up." Mm. And I say that from a really selfish point of view, because then that would still give me hope that she's going to knock on my front door. But I've had people that still serve in the force tell me that's not the case, Ricky. He done it. Um, frustration, anger, disappointment. Because when he took Cheryl, he might as well have just shot us all up that day at the beach because that's what he done. He took us all. Um, he should have just put a bullet in my head that day. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk to Frank and uh, Damien, yeah. and also, you know what? We will definitely put in a call with the premier's office and the attorney general's office, and and I always think it's worth putting in a call with the opposition as well, because well, they love they love the attention. Frankly, Ricky, yeah. <laughs> millions of people, as you say, have listened. I don't know how many people have millions listened to them. Oh, been. internationally, you know, it's yeah. it, uh, it's such a beautiful podcast. It's um, it's wonderful. It's 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 great, and it's great. I'm so happy for you to to get that support. Mm. Yeah, no, you, it's you um, deserve it's, it. I think it surprised the BBC. Yeah, it sort of got them off guard a little bit. I mean, John, it's everything true crime can be, yeah. in that it's so it's purposeful. It's um, yeah, it's a great reason to tell a story like yours, which is a terrible story, but there's such a a great reason to do it. So mm. thank you so much. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you. You're such. You're a really. You're a great brother. Mm. Could have been better. Oh no! I wish. I wish you could be telling us other stories about Cheryl and her life. But boy, she was very lucky to have mm. you as a brother. I think. Well done. We were lucky to have her for the three years. Yeah. Thank you to Ricky Nash and also thank you to the BBC and to John Kay. Don't forget to listen to the BBC's excellent podcast, Fairy Meadow. There's so much more to this story. And on Wednesday, we'll upload two more episodes of Australian True Crime. You'll hear from the two former homicide detectives who arrested the man known as Mercury, the man they and Ricky Nash believe is responsible for the abduction and murder of three-year-old Cheryl Grimmer in 1970 former homicide detectives Frank Senvitali and Damien Loon. Thank you to the following patrons. Elise McKernan, Becky D, Katie Gallagher, Amy Gruber, Josie Karen, and Samantha Dunn. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. Until Wednesday, take care. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.